0: should know about Volcker is he was doing this deliberately. Paul Volcker was part of something called the uh, uh, Committee for Controlled Disintegration of the U.S. Economy. That was their strategy. The reality of that is there are these think tanks that are funded by multinational corporations that have plans to have regime change in russia break the country into i think 13 or 14 smaller countries and steal their resources the way it was being done under the yeltsin period now putin will not allow that to happen if he's able to stop it
1: With the global economy being in shambles and central bankers moving towards a reset, it's never been a better time to protect your wealth by owning precious metals. Contact Andy at milesfranklin.com. Tell him Sarah sent you. He promised me he'll guarantee you the lowest price anywhere in the country. Remember, email andy at milesfranklin.com and tell him Sarah sent you. It's never been a better time to protect your future than now. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have the great Harley Schlinger coming back to the program. We're gonna talk about these banking collapses and what's really going on in the economy. And this is, this is really serious. You know, I wanna say though, one thing is that I didn't have the right numbers. I just wrote an article about the whole banking collapse and what's happening. And I really dove into the FDIC numbers and what the true banking numbers were back in 2008 through 2012, That that whole crisis, there was some reports going out that just didn't have the, I don't think they had the right data sets because I'm going right to the FDIC, but their analysis is correct. When they're saying that this is shaping up to be worse than the 2008 crisis, that analysis is accurate. And if you add in Credit Suisse, which is the second largest bank in Switzerland that collapsed, it this we could be shaping up already to be a worse, than 2008. The thing is, is that Lehman Brothers, which isn't reported as a bank failure because they were an investment firm. So when you go and you look at the list of bank failures, they're not listed there. And they were something like $700 billion a, a failure. The largest number was 309 billion by Bear Stearns, and they were the largest banking failure in U.S. history. But the last two banks, there's been four banks that have collapsed so far, and two of those were the second, third largest in U.S. history. They eclipse Bear Stearns together but Credit Suisse is a $1.75 trillion bank collapse. So they dwarf what Lehman Brothers was. So this whole situation is shaping up to be worse than 2008. Now, if you go to the FDIC, they claim there's only 39 banks that were at risk, at least at the end of 2022, they claim there are 39 sick banks. It was their their at-risk banks. But there was a report done by uh, three business schools, four business schools: Stanford, Northwestern, Columbia, and I think Southern California. And they talk about 200 banks being at risk, like the SVB bank situation, where if these interest rates persist and we have people pulling out their uninsured deposits, which who wants to leave uninsured deposits in a in a bank? Then we will have these other 200 banks could be at risk and that's the situation that's shaping up where we have bank after bank because in 2008 when Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers all these things collapse it created a domino effect and that's what's happening now and then with the Fed raising interest rates that's just making it worse for these banks and the FDIC does not have the money to bail these banks out so they're insolvent and so all these uninsured depositors not only are they not covered by the FDIC They're not covered at all. And so they're thinking, you know, they're they're decoupling from these banks. That's the situation that we're in. On top of the backdrop being the BRICS nations and everybody moving, all these countries moving to the BRICS. And then they have this others group that are buying the gold and the silver. And, I mean, it, it is shaping up to be a disaster for the dollar. And we're going to talk about that today with Harley Schlinger, but I needed to, to correct myself because those numbers that I talk about right away are not accurate. I got those from some reports that are usually really accurate, but I redid and I looked at it myself. So if you go to sarahwestall.com, the title of that article is called Banking Collapse Tsunami Could Eclipse 2008 Crisis. And if you go to sarahwestall.com, you'll find that. I'll have a link below to it as well so that you can see it. But that has all the accurate numbers. And But like I said, the, the analysis of those other reports were right. It's just the numbers. I don't know where they got those. So when you hear me say that, that's what I'm talking about. Before we get into this, I need to tell you my normal thing. Go to Sarahwestall.com, subscribe there. Please subscribe to my new Substack. And thank you so much for everybody that supports the show. I am so censored. So you are helping this stay afloat. And you also help by supporting my affiliates when you go to my website at serwestall.com under shop. So thank you so much. And remember to subscribe, whatever platform you're on, take a second here and just subscribe to it right now. It's really hard to grow my numbers on Rumble. So I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to me and help get that out. Okay. Let's get into this really good conversation with Harley Schlinger. Hi, Harley. Welcome back to the show.
0: Hi, Sarah. Good to be back with you.
1: We have a lot to talk about. There has been bank collapses like... I, we haven't seen this since 2008. In fact, it's gearing up to be way worse than 2008. I just read the numbers, you know, there were some headlines coming out that I thought were kind of sensationalized about the 25 banks in 2008 were worse or we're sitting at worse with, you know, the banks that have already collapsed in 2023 than the banks in 2008. And I thought, oh, that's kind of sensationalized. So I went and looked, well, they're right in 2008. But there's only twenty five. There's actually twenty six banks that have collapsed. But that whole period, of 2008 to two thousand eight to two thousand twelve, there's four hundred sixty five banks that collapsed. But from two thousand eight to twenty twenty two, the end of twenty two, six hundred twenty billion dollars worth of losses. in that whole period, including the four hundred sixty five banks, and we are so already at five hundred twenty billion dollars in two thousand or um in twenty twenty three. I mean that. That's worse than the headline. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, I was expecting clickbait a little bit. It's not. It's worse. You know, putting into context made it worse than they took it out of context. I put it in a context and it's worse. What do you have to say about that?
0: Well, you have to start by looking at what is being peddled to the American people, which is that, well, it's crypto banking. It's uh, Startups, it's uh, these special banking operations, and and they're just running into some trouble, some headwinds. And what they keep missing is that we have a service economy which is centered around banking and finance. And so when you start seeing the banks, which are protected by the government, protected by the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, because they own the Federal Reserve, uh, when you see them losing this amount of money, and then the federal institutions going in to bail them out. Well, where's that money coming to bail them out? Like the FDIC funds that just went into First Republic Bank, that's taxpayers' money. Did you vote vote to bail out First Republic Bank? Did any of your viewers vote to bail out First Republic Bank? It's like the Ukraine war. Did we vote to go to war in Ukraine against Russia? So... What's interesting is you see the banking situation and the strategic situation moving in a direction in which a small, very small group of people are controlling the outcome and controlling where the money goes and what the policy is. And Isn't the rest it of us- has always
1: been like that? That and the rest of us, who cares? But hasn't it always been like that in banking because they, they believe that- I mean, this is a story, okay? And I know you're going to have a counter to this. The story is the average person doesn't understand banking. We're here to protect you, keep things stable and and solvent. And (laughs) I mean, I don't think they did that. They didn't take care of 2008. Everybody kept saying, you didn't take care of 2008. You didn't take care of this crisis. All you did is kick it down the road. It's going to happen later. And now I think it's happening later. We are late. This is later. But if we voted for it, Well, I mean, don't you think a controlled collapse is kind of, I mean, we have to take care of something.
0: Well, the Congress is not going to do anything about it. That's the problem. So, where's the solution come from? And here you see the problem you're talking about. On the one hand, as long as people have their portfolios growing, like the home values going up in 2008, their stock values going up the last six years, they feel relatively secure. Then, when there's a ripple in it, they're told, oh, don't worry, the federal government will bail it out. The Federal Reserve has a fund. The Federal Home uh, Loan Board has money. Uh, there's international money. Don't worry, it's all under control. But what happens is people do start worrying, because they're watching people lose homes, watching businesses go under, losing jobs, losing the ability to pay for medicine and, and food and and schools and things of that sort but the problem is they have no access to the ideas that would enable them to make changes for example if you ask the average person should you let the banks fail a lot of people would say yes well if they then knew that that would mean that their deposits would be lost they would say no that's right so there's a, a lot of in the details and you don't need to know the details but you do need to know this When you shift an economy from physical economic goods production, from manufacturing, from uh, transportation, from mining, from areas that produce tangible goods and real wealth, when you shift from that and send all those industries overseas, which we've done for the last 20 years, and then depend on the money from services, this is where we're in a problem. Because services don't produce real goods. They're not backed by real value. They're backed by the faith and credit of the US government. And, you know, they're basically, I I like what Putin said about this. The one area of productivity that's going up in the US economy is the printing of money that in the form of bailouts. So people do understand that there is a physical economy because we eat. We drive cars, we, we have jobs, we go places, we do things. We know there's a physical economy, but we're too focused on money. And one of the things Lyndon LaRouche said is that money itself is stupid. Money is a tool. But if you get focused on, do I have enough money? What about my savings? What about my pension? Then you lose sight of the area where you could make a difference, which is electing people to Congress who are committed to the idea of production. So now we're seeing the world reacting against U.S. policy. We're seeing a de-dollarization. They're moving away from the funny money dollar into trading with national currencies that are backed by, by something. So this this goes back, as, as you know, Sarah, to 1971 when Nixon ended the gold reserve system for the dollar, yeah. and we've we've moved into a speculative casino well, economy.
1: Well, we they they set it up as the petrodollar, right, and. And so instead, we moved out the gold, we set it up the petrodollar, but now we're turning our back on the petrodollar by doing this whole Green New Deal stuff. So not only- we attacking is, the petro
0: industry, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So now only are we not supporting <laughs> you know, the backing of our own currency. We have this fiat currency. We're not doing things that are responsible to make us stronger. It's like we're run by people who- I mean, I got to be honest, people who really are clueless on all this stuff, are they re- or they're doing it on purpose. It's either they're really clueless on how all this operates, or they're doing it on purpose. And a lot of people well, think they're doing it on purpose because they want to, they have more respect. It's a respectful thing, thinking these people are smarter than that. But are they? I don't know.
0: Well, you know, when there are delusions and delusions take hold, like the delusion that there's no problem trading in derivatives that have nothing of value backing them because ultimately someone will buy them. Well, that's a delusion. The the problem is that you have people who are so arrogant because they're rich. They think that that they're the masters of the universe. People like Jamie Dimon came out yesterday after basically the government gave him all the assets of First Republic Bank. After the FDIC took the bad, the toxic paper off the books, Jamie Dimon said, now the the banking system is very, very safe and strong. Well, his situation for the moment is safe and strong because his is the biggest too big to fail bank on the planet. But we saw one of the other too big to fail banks, Credit Suisse, just go under in the last month. And Credit Suisse is now been taken over by UBS. And UBS, in order to, to write down all the bad debt, needed over $100 billion from uh, the Swiss National Bank. And then the Swiss National Bank ran out of money. The Swiss government is underwriting the shotgun marriage between UBS and Credit Suisse. And it's one and a half times the total GDP of the Swiss economy that's oh going gosh. into this merger.
1: So now people aren't, are they up? They're not up on arms because it's not affecting their day-to-day lives and they don't understand it. So they're being bamboozled through ignorance. You know, it comes back to the, my people perish for lack of knowledge. They're being bamboozled through their own ignorance, and they're not stepping up because it's being hidden from us. The media is really not talking about this; it's they're not saying anything. People would be fearful, and they'd be—they are buying silver and gold at numbers we've never seen before. Yeah. And you know, people that do know know something's going on, but the average person has no idea. So, can you talk about why these banks are failing and how dangerous of a situation is it for the average person right now?
0: Well, this goes back to the 2008 period. I mean, it does go back before that to 1971, but we can start with 2008. What happened was we had a huge bubble. We had a government backing of a mortgage security bubble. And so people were uh, borrowing money based on the expectation that their house value would go up indefinitely. And they can borrow on that and use the money they're borrowing to pay off the mortgage and also to take trips and buy fancy SUVs and everything else. And so as is often the case, when the infinitely rising values start to fall, what do you do? And what they decided to do was save the banks, except for a few of them, starting with Lehman Brothers, but save the banks and not the the homeowners. And somewhere, over 6 million, maybe 7 million families lost their homes in 2008. Now, that was a huge crisis. That's a lot of families without a home. That's right. And instead of addressing it, what Obama did when he came in was to say to the banks, don't worry, I'll protect you. I'm the one standing between you and the pitchforks. Now, in the meantime, I think if everybody had a headline that said six million families on the street because of the housing bubble and then identifying the housing bubble being a combination of Greenspan's idea that the stock bubble is not irrational exuberance, but it's really rational. And of course, he said it's rational until it pops. You don't know until it pops that it's irrational. How do you have an imbecile like that running the Federal Reserve? That's system?
1: what I'm saying. I, are they that ignorant, or are they, are they doing? No, it in a the case I of Greenspan, if you ignorant, go through,
0: if if you go through the minutes, they're they're in disbelief that their policies wouldn't work. They think that they're doing the right thing, but they also know that it's not working. There are minutes where Greenspan is turning to people saying, "Well, what are we doing here?" The famous meeting when it was decided to let Lehman go under in September 2008, Uh, Richard Fuld, the CEO of Lehman Brothers, when he was told they're going to let his bank collapse. And he knew that every other bank was filled with worthless paper and uh, unsecure mortgages and so on. He said, so now I'm the schmuck. So he understood at that point anyway, that the system was unsustainable. But what so did they why do? did they
1: let, let's go back to that. Why did they let Lehman Brothers fail, but not the rest?
0: Well, they basically have this idea called moral hazard. And this is one of these uh, bits of hubris that bankers have that we're not going to uh, invest in anything that's not going to pay it back. We're serious and sober minded individuals and, and on and on and on. And so because of moral hazard, if, if some among us, one of our fellow bankers makes mistakes, they should take the losses. Now, the problem is they were all doing the same thing. But Lehman was out on the limb a little bit further. Lehman had something like $38 of of, uh, bad assets for every dollar to back it up. So a 38 to one, that's almost unheard of. A lot of the others were sitting there at 32 to one and should have been put through bankruptcy reorganization. Now this he was is- just
1: first, right? And and these guys all. This is what I think. He was first. These guys guys all compete with each other. It the the whole human factor. A bunch of egomaniacs got together and they said, "I I don't like this guy. We've been. He's an asshole or whatever they think. He's. Uh, Let's make him suffer." And then they they could make him suffer, but meanwhile they're behind the scenes doing their things to make sure that they're going to be okay. So I think it was payback for personal vendettas but I could be wrong.
0: Well, it, it, it's not just personal vendettas. Let, let's take the, the present situation for a moment. When First Republic was first announced to be in trouble in, in March, 11 banks put up $30 billion to bail it out. That's happened before. That, that was the original plan for uh, 2008. That was what was done with the long-term capital management in 1997, I think it was, where you had a group of banks put up money to put a stop to the flow of money outward now it never works because the reason money was leaving the bank is because it was it, it's bad debt far outweighed its actual assets
1: so the, what, what you're saying is that they all of these banks should be a con- control collapse allow bad things to collapse and regain a healthy economy so having Lehman Brothers collapse but in a controlled fashion really was a good thing to do but he was I see I still go back to the ego maniacs because nobody else had to collapse but him but even though it was the right thing to do
0: maybe well but what happened is they all realized that what happened to Lehman would happen to them that's maybe right in a month maybe in two months and so when they thought maybe we can stop it with one bank it didn't work And the other banks started losing. So you think
1: it was genuine? They actually tried to stop it with one bank and do something right for once.
0: Well, you know, it's hard to tell exactly. I I liken it to the movie Weekend at Bernie's, which I think you've seen, uh, or you may know about a a boss who's died and, and two of his young employees prop him up for a house party. These were weekends with Ben Bernanke, where they were all sitting around. They all knew the system was going. And the question was, who would take the brunt? Who would be the schmuck in Fold's terminology? But then what happened very quickly is they got together with Geithner, who was the, the New York Fed at the time. And the New York Fed is owned by uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank. The Fed is owned by these private banks. And they took a look at the situation and they said, we need cash quick. We need liquidity. Now, why did they need liquidity? If you're holding things at a certain face value or or nominal value in your books, and if you had to sell it to to make cash, the price would probably collapse far below the face value. This is why the old days they had mark to market valuations that you, you actually had to value things on the basis of what you could get if you sell it. Well, once you get at a point where there's a loss of confidence, lack of trust, and no one believes anybody has anything of value. Then what happens is that the people, the ones who move first go into a fire sale to get cash. And once they start doing that, depositors pull money out of the bank, which is what happened with Signature Bank, SVB and First Republic. The depositors started running out of the bank because they thought their deposits would be lost. And these are the bigger depositors, those with over $250,000 in their accounts. Now, once that sense of contagion occurs, what do you do? What should happen is what Franklin Roosevelt did when he first came into office, a bank holiday where you send some competent accountants in with their green eye shades and their pencils. Now you do it differently. But you figure out what's the actual asset value worth. Uh, Do they have enough to cover what they owe? And if not, let's... Uh, write it off over time, cancel the debt, or just shut it down and have the investors take the loss. And at that point, they passed legislation that permanently, or not permanently, but, but definitely separated investment banking from commercial banking. And the idea was commercial banking would be backed up by the FDIC and investment bankers would be backed up by their own cash, their own money. That system worked pretty well but it didn't make investment bankers super wealthy. And Which so is they what they want. Funding.
1: That's why they changed the Glass-Eagle Act so they could invest.
0: Yeah, and they started in the 70s. Uh, Greenspan was involved in this. The, the Heritage Foundation was involved in it. They were basically saying, we're limiting the money that can be made in banking by these laws. Uh, they said that the uh, mortgage banks were an anachronism, the idea of regulation Q, where you limit the amount you could charge for interest and uh, have a set fee for what you can pay in savings. And people used to put money in savings banks because they'd make 3 or 4% on their savings. And then the, the money would be loaned out at 5 or 6%. And it funded home ownership. The, the, these it was savings good, banks.
1: right? It was a solid, yeah. good business model that, did, that got the risk. Yeah, and it got the, pulled the risk out, and then they changed it. What They changed it in 1999, didn't they? They totally well, went no, out. Well, no, the,
0: the SNL thing was changed with the Garn St. Germain Act in 1982, and then there were several other measures. And then when the SNLs got in the trouble, because remember, Volcker raised the interest rates through the roof. And what people should know about Volcker is he was doing this deliberately. Paul Volcker was part of something called the... Um, Uh, Committee for Controlled Disintegration of the U.S. Economy. That was their strategy. And he was the uh, Undersecretary of Treasury under uh, Carter. Then he became the Federal Reserve Chairman and he raised the interest rates. It was 21 percent. But he
1: wasn't able to destroy the economy. The people got rid of him before and figured out that these people were really traitors. I mean, he he, was a traitor if he was really trying to destroy the economy.
0: Well, he was. He was committed to the idea that we no longer can function as an industrial economy, that the United States should shift into a new phase. Uh, this is what uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski called the technotronic era. This is what um, uh, Walt Riston, the head of Citibank, called the twilight of sovereignty. The idea that sovereign nations. The
1: twilight of sovereignty. What an a-hole, but keep going ahead. Well, that was, his, that was the name of his book. I know, but I know. Isn't that incredible? Oh. Like, you sovereign, but twilight of sovereignty means the twilight of freedom. I mean, essentially.
0: The end of the nation state and the end of republics. Because the whole idea of our modern system that goes back to the American Constitution, and before that, there were some steps in this direction, but it's the American Constitution and the American Republic, which basically defined the purpose of government to be the general welfare not the protection of special privilege. And that's the fight we're having over the last 240 years of our country. There are various periods where you have leaders who put the general welfare first. And that means that those who have uh, skills and, and entrepreneurial capabilities, inventors and others have access to credit but and, and the right to make a profit, but not to make a super profit through uh monopolization and things of that sort so we've always had this fight and one of the key people in this that that i focused on today because it's relevant today was jp morgan who was one of the uh most ruthless bankers in the 1890s the early 1900s wasn't he?
1: Hold on a second. Wasn't he a front for Rothschild That after they realized he was really paid by Rothschild? He didn't own all of J.P. Morgan. He owned a portion, but he was really a front man for the Rothschild banking system.
0: Well, most of the big bankers at that time were tied very directly to British banking. And the Rothschilds were one of the most prominent of the city of London at that time. And Morgan himself was a British citizen. But what he was able to do was you take advantage of laws so that he had access to credit. And he, and this is interesting in 1907, the crisis of 1907, Morgan pulled together a small group of people, including John D. Rockefeller to put together, I can't remember the figure, I think it's That's 10, 10, $30 million at the time uh, to save a couple of banks. And what did they do? They got rid of the toxic assets and took over the assets, the rest of the assets. And and they streamlined the banking system. And then they started doing the same thing with trusts, with uh, setting up trusts and steel. And And created the
1: Federal Reserve at that point, too, because in
0: 1913, what Morgan said, I'm not going to bail out the U.S. economy again. We need something that is over and above the government that will do what's necessary to maintain stability. Now, what did he mean by stability? The ability of robber barons like himself and the Harrimans and, and the Rockefellers to control the markets. That's right. Because essentially what the Federal Reserve does is controls the credit and currency policy of the United States. What the Great Reset is designed to do is give them one more power, namely the power of spending. Take away from elected representatives, whether it's Congress or Parliament's, Put in the hands of technocrats who work for the private banks and the central banks which are appendages of the private banks to determine where money should be spent
1: they they actually and, and they do this by they can create money based on the money they have and they and so they get to create money to give to whoever they want to give it to and the rest of us if we're not in their club We don't get the money, but they are literally doling out millions of dollars to the different organizations that build society the way they want it to go.
0: Well, and this was the fight in 1962-63 with John Kennedy, who wanted the Federal Reserve to provide more credit to the steel industry, because the steel industry didn't have access to credit to modernize to keep up with some of our competitors. And the Fed said, no, we're not going to do it. And Kennedy fought them. There was a huge battle. And that's when in June 63, Kennedy issued Executive Order 11-110, which went outside of the Federal Reserve to generate credit. And the credit was the form of treasury notes.
1: And that got him killed, and probably.
0: That's one of likely. the major reasons why he was targeted for assassination.
1: Yeah.
0: Because he was he made it clear that he would not be bound by the agreements including agreements made by his own father, who was a securities and exchange commissioner under uh, FDR.
1: If your father's not doesn't give a crap about the American people, then you need to do what's right. That is kind of cool that he went against his own family and said, hey, let's do what's right here.
0: Well, and there's a lot if you look at the Kennedy history, there's a book Kennedy versus Wall Street by a guy named Donald Gibson, which is really fascinating about the discussion that was going on. And it's also fascinating for the present time because Kennedy was moving against the colonial policy of the Europeans. He was backing the Algerian independence movement. He was calling for support for the Congo independence movement from Belgium. Why? He said that's the American tradition. We're anti-colonial. We don't think great powers should control the resources and the labor of poorer countries. Now, what do we have today? What's the international monetary fund? The world So Bank, they, I was gonna say that's everything.
1: Savings. That's everything that they are. They completely they use their monetary system to go in and control other countries. I mean they other where countries their arrogance, have been complaining about it for decades now.
0: Well, well here's where their arrogance, years,
1: but go ahead.
0: Here's where their arrogance got the better of them. They came up with this idea of using the World Trade Organization to take advantage of cheap labor in places like China, where you had a huge labor force. And so the outsourcing really took off after the Deng Xiaoping period in the 1980s, where the Chinese opened their economy to allow American corporations to come in. Now, there are people out there saying, see, China stole our technology. They did everything bad to us. No, we opened the door for that and now china- it's a two-way
1: street i mean they did steal our patents and stuff but we also took well, advantage we do of that them. also
0: we do that. yes we do yes. even even more interesting today china is producing many many more patents than we are in the united they are. states
1: i wrote a paper on this like five years ago they were doing it then
0: yeah so but but what my point is what happened with this world trade organization We were taking advantage of cheap labor and cheap raw materials from around the world. This was the corporate cartels that were doing this through the government and above the government through the World Trade Organization. Now, at a certain point, the Chinese said, why should we pay our workers so little to make the profits for American stock stock owners and, and so on? So the Chinese started raising the wages. And this caused a huge furor. How can you do this to us? We helped industrialize you. And the Chinese said, well, the next phase for us requires better paid workers, better education, better health care, all the things that we need in the United States. But the corporations that were controlling international trade didn't like that. They went against it. And now what we're seeing is a rebellion against the petrodollar system, the dollar system, which takes place on several levels. I mean, one is strategic. Did you know there's not a single African nation that supports U.S. sanctions against Russia?
1: I'm not surprised. I I think everyone's moving towards the BRICS system as fast as they possibly can. The evidence is showing that, and the Africans are the most. And that's because, just like what I was saying before, that we were taking advantage of um, different... poorer countries' resources through the IMF, I don't want to say we, because I didn't do that, but they were doing that, then you have the BRICS nations coming in and giving them a better deal and saying, hey, we won't, you can take loans through us and we won't treat you as a slave. You won't have, you will have loan conditions that allow you to pay it back and also prosper on your goods and your resources. We kind of created a mess for ourselves, because how do we get out of something like that when we've been I don't want to say we cuz I didn't do that but it the part I'm part of this country and the IMF in the western it's a lot of european bankers did that.
0: Well, and and we benefited from it to, to some extent because the well, american economy did. was well, we we were growing because of of extracting cheap raw materials from other countries. And then we've started finding out that if we're going to start doing that in our own country again such as with oil and others, it becomes more expensive. But the, the point is that the, the strategic side of it is they don't support the war in Ukraine, the Africans, many of the Asians, the South Americans. Secondly, they don't support the sanctions policy because they've all been victims of it. You know The idea that Blinken has that sanctions are a clever way of forcing a country to, to submit to your demands doesn't work that way. You're killing children. You're, you're right. killing young mothers. And you're me, killing the elderly. It, it's
1: awful. Let me say one thing that United States, even though we've been doing all, it's not just the U.S. It's the it's the European powers. It's the central bankers. The one thing that United States has that almost every country is envious of and wish they had is our constitution and our freedom. And we do have a, a, a beacon of light in that way. And so we're not all bad. I mean, we have a great country. No, we we, we have a constitution.
0: We would... Yes. We, we have a constitution which is unique. And that's the best part of the American system. But we're not following it.
1: No, we're The not. idea
0: that, that we're, we're, we're now supporting a neocolonialism through the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people. I do a lot of interviews and, and stations and television in Africa and other countries And they all say, well, you're the kind of American we like. Whatever happened to your country? How did it change? And just two quick examples. When Blinken went to South Africa to lecture the the South African foreign minister, who's a short, short lady, but very powerful, he's lecturing her about freedom and democracy. And she said, Mr. Blinken, you may not know this, but we're a sovereign nation. Don't come here to bully us to do what you want. And this is somewhat typical now of what's happening. Then you see the other thing, the Saudi Iran rapprochement brokered by the Chinese. Now, what did the Chinese do? They said, look, we've got to rebuild Iraq. We've got to rebuild Syria. We can't afford these wars. You need to invest in the future. We'll work with you. We'll bring the belt and road in. We will work with you on this. But you guys have to give up your, your enmity. And this caught everyone in the world by surprise and that was great
1: a... though i mean if they're genuine now do you believe this is all genuine because okay if if china is really saying we got to end these wars and they're believing it and the BRICS nations are believing that there should be sovereign sovereign nations and china has this brutal they, they really do kind of have this brutalized system of censorship are they going to, as they become the dominant part, part uh country, are they gonna want to, you know, have that all over? Or can we maintain a sovereignty and have this no-war situation and people can coexist and there can be a beautiful exchange? Or is that naive? That's that's the concern that I have is that we'll end up having part of the CCP down on our necks.
0: Well, Sarah, let me let me go back to the censorship conference you just sponsored. And by the way, congratulations for that. It was, it was so necessary. Our news about these countries is censored. We're not getting the story about what's going on in Russia. We never heard what was going on in the Donbass. And so all of a sudden, Putin is the, the, the new Hitler. And we've got to rally our country to, to defeat Russia. Now, the reality of that is there are these think tanks that are funded by multinational corporations that have plans to have regime change in Russia, break the country into, I think, 13 or 14 smaller countries and steal their resources the way it was being done under the Yeltsin period. Now, Putin will not allow that to happen if he's able to stop it. Now, the Chinese look at that and the Chinese are committed to this idea of mutual benefit. Now, you know, the, the question of the, the, just as an example, the Xinjiang province, the Uyghur story, it's crap. It's made up by a German professor who sold it to the British intelligence, uh, the, the Be- Bellingcat. The Muslim countries have sent people into Xinjiang province to see if these so-called re-education camps or concentration camps, they're saying people are learning Chinese, they're getting jobs. If this is So, a genocide, so it's not
1: quite what they say, but there are he- organs being um, harvested on live I don't think that's true anymore. You You think no. part of that, because I've talked to, I've done interviews and people undercover and all that stuff. You think all that was bunk? You know, people- No, I think there to, was
0: some of that going on previously.
1: Because I think, think, because China could be great and still have that going on. I mean, we have human trafficking here. I mean, we, every country has has bad
0: guys. I'd be surprised if they, go ahead. They have problems. But when people get so freaked out about the social credit program in China, what do you think we have in the United States? You don't think that Facebook and, and- Bill
1: Benny no. says we're way more advanced than China is, and we exactly. actually, yeah, exactly. he says our surveillance is so far advanced of China's, and so it's just that's all bunk. He said that to me pre, you know, five years ago. He says, there we're so far ahead of the Chinese on this stuff. Yeah. This is just propaganda.
0: But let, let's just bring this back to the the whole question of de-dollarization. Why the world is moving away. They saw what the US did to Afghanistan, stealing $9 billion of Afghan national treasure, 300 billion stolen from Russia, the sanctions and so on. So they don't wanna be part of our banking system, but until now they've had no alternative. That's what's so important about the BRICS. You now have countries whose GDP is achieving levels that will soon surpass what we see in the G7. And so they're beginning to get a sense that they don't have to crawl to London and crawl to Washington for concessions because they can do trade uh, in national currencies going outside the SWIFT system. Now, does this mean we're about to go into a bipolar world instead of a unipolar world? Well, it could, and that would be a disaster. But what the Chinese and the Russians are trying to do is to, in a sense, have agreements which are mutually beneficial. And that is based on sovereign nations acting for the economic development of each other. Now this was always the idea of people like George Washington and John Quincy Adams and some of the early founding fathers and this was what Franklin Roosevelt wanted the United Nations to be, but it was sabotaged by people in his administration. Uh, this is what Kennedy's Alliance for Progress well, we, was.
1: But we never wanted to do have foreign wars either. Until World War II, after you know World War One and after World War II, we didn't want to get involved in foreign wars. That wasn't our country. We became I mean, the world's policeman after that. The whole right. thing changed after that. I mean, we I mean, did gen- we did colonize colonize the uh, Native Americans and genocide and everything else, but. That's a different issue than wanting to do foreign wars.
0: Well, and you're absolutely right. And and what happened is after World War II, a gang of Wall Street corporate cartel leaders like the Harrimans and the Bushes, working together with the British, the city of London, basically said, we're going to have a world divided between East and West, and we're going to dominate in the West and eventually wear down the Soviet Union, which did happen. Now, when that happened, instead of taking a victory lap and then saying, OK, come join us, let's let's be all world citizens. Which together. they could
1: have done because they were ready to join us and they wanted to be free. And the art of war, you take their energy and you you put it in yours and you group together and that's how you take it. And they didn't do that. So talk about what they did.
0: Well, What they did is they lied to uh, the Russians about nato they said there'd be no eastward expansion they said we're going to help you become capitalist now how do they supposedly make them capitalists shock therapy they crashed the russian currency people in russia the the death rate in russia soared life expectancy went from 73 years to the, the mid-60s for yeah, men crashing
1: russia. the currency was a move to the human that was an evil move for revenge or something, because you didn't. we had no reason to crash the currency other than for some kind of gain, to get their well, goods yeah. at cheap, right?
0: Well, Sarah, Russia is one of the most wealthy countries when it comes to raw materials. And that's what most of what was done under Yeltsin was American bankers and British bankers and some German bankers went into Russia to buy up everything they could cheap and hire Russian oligarchs to manage their properties. When this started a a terrible demographic crisis, uh, Yeltsin stepped aside and that's when Putin came in. And Putin spent a number of years just trying to stabilize Russia. The biggest fear of this British group that worked with the Americans after World War II was the same fear they had in 1900, What would happen if France, Germany, and Russia formed an alliance and oriented toward Eurasia, where you have all this untapped raw material wealth? Remember, the the British were involved in wars in Afghanistan in the 1830s through the 1880s, the the so-called Great Game. Geopolitics was based on how do you pit all these countries against each other to control it. The whole Middle East, with the Shia, Sunni, the Zionists versus the Arab world, All of these were tensions that were built up out of London, and eventually Washington became part of it. But at the same time, Washington was trying to help these countries develop their oil industry, their technology. But we got totally seduced into this British outlook after the collapse of the Soviet Union that we're the only power, there's only one economic model that will work, and that's the model of the corporate cartels. And this is what's collapsing now. We were, we were talking earlier about the banking. That's,
1: and that's why I talked about it. it's not in our history. That wasn't our history until World War II. It's not in our blood of freedom to be that kind of a vulture society.